My dad passed away 20 years ago this month. And I remember the last words I heard him say just before he was taken into surgery to repair a broken hip. After we had prayed, after we would committed him and that whole procedure to the Lord, he said, and this is, these are the last things he said, let's get this show on the road. He was never the most patient patient. His motor was always running, even to the very end. And so his last words were remarkably congruent with the way he'd lived his entire life. Let's go. Let's get her done. (laughs) And uh, that was it. My mother passed away 15 years ago. Her life ended in a semi-Alzheimer's state of dementia, and uh, she had not put more than three meaningful words together for at least three years. So I was startled when the very last words I heard my mother utter were a coherent prayer of blessing for me and for Laurie and for each of our three sons by name. I thank God for giving me that moment with her, that memory of her, for she had been to me her whole life a quiet, gentle, generous woman of prayer. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 19 to 20, we have recorded the last words written by the most fruitful missionary who ever lived. Certainly Paul spoke other things, probably before his final breath. Uh, He perhaps even wrote other things. But if he did, they are not recorded anywhere else. And so these four verses are therefore very precious and very personal and very poignant words. And as we will see, they are remarkably consistent with Paul's character and lifelong burden. So, I want to invite you to follow along as I read them. Because we believe that God's Word, this Scripture is breathed out by God. (laughs) These are the very words that God has spoken. What a gift of and mercy God has given in communicating himself in this way as as an expression of honor of that and love for that and esteem for that and desire to receive that. I want to, if you're physically able, invite you to stand and follow along as I read these, these last words of the Apostle Paul. He writes, Greet Prisca and Aquila, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace 
be with you. This is God's holy and authoritative word. Let's pray together. It is such a privilege, Father, to hear you address us. And we would ask that by your Holy Spirit, you might impress upon us what a privilege and precious gift that is. And cause our hearts to be responsive to what you've said. And cause us to see with our hearts and hear with our hearts and sense with our hearts the the preciousness and the purposefulness of what you have said through your servant, the Apostle Paul. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What stands out immediately in this brief paragraph is it's the names, right? Prisca, Aquila, Onesiphorus, Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. These are actual individuals. They are people that Paul knew. They are people with whom Paul had done life. And in his last recorded words, Paul mentions them. Why? Why is is that significant? And I believe it is mainly significant because of how Paul loves them. By identifying them, by greeting them, by name, Paul is loving these people. Imagine yourself as one of the individuals mentioned by Paul in in these verses, what would it mean to you? It means I'm known. It means I'm acknowledged. It means I'm connected. It means I am loved. Friends, never, ever underestimate the powerful effect of greeting one another by name. It is a weak household, a weak spiritual community, weak at best, and a disconnected household or spiritual community at worst, where people can cross paths, they can coexist without the simple but incredibly powerful practice of saying, Good morning, greetings, good morning, Lori, hi, Joel, hi, Isabel. Silence sends a message, and the message one hears in silence is, I'm assumed, (laughs) I'm disregarded. I'm unknown. Silence is often a means of distancing. And silence weaponized is a means of punishing. Passive-aggressive punishment. But greeting, by name, 
is an evidence of care. It is a means of nourishing a relational bond. And it is a fundamental and vital habit that communicates God's grace, God's presence, God's power. One of my favorite examples of this is when in the story, in the gospel story of Mary and Elizabeth greeting one another, the babies leap within them. There's a powerful means of God's presence and grace communicated simply by saying, hello. So what is Paul doing through these, his final recorded words? Paul's loving people. He is loving people. He is nourishing and cultivating community. Paul is doing the very thing he spent his entire Christian life doing. Paul is building the household of God. Paul is purposefully, intentionally pouring himself out to the very end of his life for the sake of establishing and strengthening the local church. And in Paul's last words, he instructs us yet once again regarding the nature and the priority and the beauty and the glory of the household of God. Now, before we consider Paul's last words regarding the local church, there's, there's something very, very important to recognize. And so listen carefully. <laughs> Loved ones, God inspired these words. God breathed out 2 Timothy 4, 19-22. And every one of these words is profitable for our faith and in order that we might be made complete and equipped for every good work. And that means that God knows these names. It means that God wants us to know these names. It means that of all the people on earth, God knew Prisca and Aquila and all the household of Anesiphorus. God knew that Erastus had remained at Corinth. God knew that Trophimus was sick and that Paul had to leave him behind at Miletus. It means that God was familiar with Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, and Claudia. It means that God was aware of and acquainted with all the brothers and all the sisters. And that's because God knows all His children by name. Loved ones, God inspired these four verses to remind you that if you are trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, He knows your name. If you're relying on Jesus, if you're treasuring Jesus, if you're following Jesus, our Heavenly Father knows your name. He knows where you are. He knows if you're sick or not. He knows if you're doing well or not. He knows your regrets. 
He knows your concerns and your situation. He knows your joys and your heartaches. He knows your every thought. He sees all the tears that fall. And He hears you when you call. And so are you trusting Christ Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and for the fulfillment of every promise God the Father has made in His Word, including the promise of eternal life? Do you count Jesus as your Lord, accepting His claim upon your life? Are you resolved in your mind and in your heart to keep His commands? There's no higher calling. There is no greater joy than being known by name, called by name, held fast by name, according to the sovereign and saving grace of God. In Christ Jesus. Now. What would Paul. In these last recorded words. Have us to know. About. The household of God. And I want to draw your attention to three things. First of all. And this was Paul's concern, right? His whole life. This was Paul's concern throughout these two letters. His concern, his burden, is that we would understand that the household of God, first of all, is a group of people. This simply cannot be emphasized enough. In the world we live in, The local church, in a functional sense, is so often defined and understood as nothing more than a meeting we attend. Or in these times, a meeting to which we tune in. In our times, commitment to a local church means committing to attending or tuning in to a program for about an hour or two a week. Church is good worship, motivating preaching. Doing church means coming and or sitting and listening like you're doing and perhaps singing and then leaving. In other words, the main focus is the Sunday or Saturday or Friday or whenever that meeting is. But it's the meeting. While relationships can be optional. For Paul, the local church is the household of God. And as in any household, relationships are not optional. And that's because the household of God is a group of people. And so Paul says, greet Prisca and Aquila. Greet the household of Anesiphorus. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, sisters. So friends, Paul spent his entire Christian life communicating the truth that the local church is a group of of people. We see this. Ephesians 5.25 says, Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
That's a group of people, not a meeting. Jesus didn't die for a meeting. <laughs> he died for people. 1 Corinthians 14.4, the one who prophesies builds up the church. Romans 16.5, greet also the church in their house. These are people that are being built up. These are people that are gathering. These are relationships. Throughout the New Testament, and especially in Paul's teaching, the word church always refers to a group of people, and it never refers to a place that you go or a meeting that you attend. And one of the greatest barriers that hinders us from experiencing life together as the household of God, it's a mental barrier that views church simply as a, a place or a building or a Bible study rather than a group of people to which I belong and by whom I am known. But now the church is not just any group of people. <laughs> there is something unique about the household of God. And so secondly, the household of God is a group of people who are united distinctly by their experience of the Holy Spirit. We know, for instance, according to Acts chapter 18, that prior to their conversion, Aquila and his wife Priscilla, that's her, that's her whole name, I guess. Prisca would be more of an affectionate, familiar name. They were Jews. And we also know that Onesiphorus was an Ephesian Gentile. So, so how is it possible for a kosher Jew, no bacon Jew, to be in the same group with a ham and eggs Gentile? And how can a wealthy landlord be in the same group as a slave? And how can 50 and 60-something-year-olds be in the same group as teens and 20-somethings? And how can the cool kids be in the same group as the not-cool kids? Or how is it possible for those who believe that masks are absolutely essential to be in the same group as those who believe that masks are going to go away come November? Paul raised that very question. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13, where he writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ, for in, into one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's our shared experience. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, cool, not cool, masks, no masks, all were made to drink of one spirit. So you see, the household of God is not just any group of people. It is a group of people who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are experiencing the presence of of the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. 
grace be with you. The single most distinguishing mark that sets the people of God apart from any other group is the active, dynamic, discernible presence of God. That's what grace means. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses prayed, How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Isn't it your presence? Isn't it your discernible, manifest presence working among us? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. It is the active, dynamic, discernible nearness of God in us, among us, transforming hearts, uniting ethnicities, subduing natural hostilities, engendering forgiveness and long-suffering. In short, producing the fruit of the Spirit that creates, that strengthens, that sustains our relationships in the household of God as nothing in this world can do. Sadly, um, there are always some who, <laughs> believing rightly that spiritual community is necessary, um, that they, they take great offense and they harbor bitterness in their hearts when they don't experience the connectedness that they desire. And their response to their frustrated desire is evidence of another barrier to healthy life together in and as the household of God. Because you see, it's one thing to change our thinking about church. It is another thing. Much harder. In fact, impossible apart from the grace of God within us to change our hearts. And so, loved ones, it doesn't require new birth to make demands of others. It doesn't require new birth to take offense at others. It doesn't require new birth to become embittered towards others. It doesn't require new birth to hold others hostage to our conditions for appeasing our wrath. Unregenerate people do that all the time. Neither does it require new birth to join a crowd. Neither does it require new birth to make a profession of faith. Neither does it require new birth to follow Jesus for a while. Or as long as it's not an interruption or an inconvenience. But it does require new birth to produce spirit-born love and perseverance and patience and meekness and humility and kindness and self-control. It does require the active, dynamic, discernible presence and power of God to produce spirit-born joy and forgiveness. It does require the grace of God 
to create the people of God and to engender a relational fabric that is unique to the household of God. It's a little sentence in this text that <laughs> you just go, why is this here? But in verse 21, Paul says, kind of in the midst of these greetings, do your best to come before winter. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think there's a measure of urgency in it. Part of it is perhaps um, the recognition Paul has that, um, you know, I'm on death row, Timothy. The executioner could come for me any day, Timothy. If you don't make it here before winter, we may never see each other again, Timothy. Or it might be this, Timothy, <laughs> I, can, I can tell you from my own personal experience that making that crossing late in the season can be treacherous. I mean, the ship I was on nearly sank in that northeaster. If you don't find a way here soon, we may never see each other again. So Paul wants Timothy to come. He desires Timothy, to come. Do your best to come. I, I, I need you to come. God's Word tells us where anger and division and frustration comes from. James chapter 4, 1 says, What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So, Again, you know, it doesn't require new birth to get angry and ticked off and lose your temper when you don't get the things that you want. Paul really wants Timothy to come before winter. He really wants to see him. It could be their last chance. But you see, what sets God's people apart and what makes their relationships distinct is the active, dynamic, discernible presence of God. So when men and women, boys and girls, are made new by the grace of God and there is a different impulse within them, not perfect, not without failings, not without ebbs and low points, but in their most desperate times, those who are joined to Jesus, they can say, do your best and I'll trust God with the rest. Perhaps you won't make it in time. But I still know that Jesus is mine. Maybe I'll die. Maybe your ship will sink. But we're still one by the grace of God's Spirit to the glory of Jesus Christ. So, all that to say is that it's not just any group of people who are the household of God. It is it is a group of people who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and who are experiencing the presence of the Spirit today. The experience of the Spirit actually does something. It bears 
fruit. It produces love, deep love for one another. And that means that the household of God is a group of people united by their experience of the Holy Spirit and who focus on each individual's needs and contributions. That's what love looks like. It's when we're able to focus on each individual's needs and contributions. When your heart is filled with the active and dynamic, discernible presence of God, and you meet somebody else whose heart is also filled with the active, dynamic, discernible presence of God, you will experience something remarkable. You find love happening. Paul greets these people by name because he loves them. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anesiphorus. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Putin's Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. Paul conveys to Timothy personal knowledge about the whereabouts of Erastus and the health and the well-being of Trophimus, verse 19, Erastus, Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Paul doesn't give much more detail about all that, which is curious, but it's because when you really know someone and you really love someone, when your hearts are united because of the presence of God through the Spirit, they know what to do. Timothy knew what to do because he knew Paul. He knew those people. They loved each other. They were, their lives were knit together. Loved ones, if you find yourself tempted to keep your needs, your real needs, real needs to yourself, because to communicate them might cause others to perceive you as needy or perceive you as weak. In that moment, just consider it a Holy Spirit tap on your shoulder that you need the Lord to be with your spirit. You need the grace of God. Consider it God's little secret signal between you and Him that you need to nourish your bond with Him through faith. Paul says, do your best to come before winter. Please come. You know, I need somebody to stand by me. This is the Apostle Paul. I need companionship. I need a friend in my darkest hour. Timothy, I need you doesn't require new birth to be self-reliant and self-sufficient and self-righteous. But it does require the active and dynamic and discernible presence and power of God to confess our needs, to make ourselves transparent in times of trouble. It requires the grace of God to make ourselves known. An old friend of mine coined this phrase and. A lot of you have heard me say it plenty, so it's not going to be new, but everybody's normal till you get to know them. 
We all have idiosyncrasies. We're, we're all deeply flawed. Just takes a little while and you'll figure that out. I know that you're all flawed. That's okay. If you think I'm normal, you just don't know me well. <laughs> I'm as hard to love as anyone else apart from the active presence and power of God. The household of God is a group of people joined together by their shared experience of the Holy Spirit. And the shared experience of the presence and power of the Lord generates a lay down our life love for one another that focuses on each individual's needs and contributions, weaknesses and gifts, sins and strengths. Paul says again in verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Interesting, your spirit, singular, Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit, Timothy. Grace be with you, plural, all of you, Ephesians, all of you, Emmaus Road Church, all of you who have tasted of the gift of salvation. He's speaking to us all. Loved ones, if you are trusting Jesus to make you right with God and to be your greatest treasure, you are a child of God. Jesus suffered and died to overcome your unwillingness. He shed his blood to overcome your shame and your guilt. He has overcome your pride and your fear of appearing needy. On the cross, he has paid your debt. Suspended between heaven and earth, he has propitiated God's wrath against your sin. Listen, if, if you desire Him, if you hope in Him, it shows that He has made your heart new. And as an adopted member of His household, there is an eternal and glorious inheritance awaiting you. But perhaps you have not yet come into the household of God. And friend, Jesus is calling your name. Come now. Come before winter. <laughs> I mean that literally and metaphorically, spiritually. Come before it's too late. The door is open now and it could quickly close forever. So don't miss it. Our Heavenly Father has a household prepared for you. It's a habitat, if you will designed for your growth and your flourishing where you might experience His presence and His power and the soul-satisfying sweetness of His grace. Come and welcome to Christ Jesus and the household of God.